I guess the tagline for this morning is, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And I'm going to read quite a big chunk of scripture uh, from Luke 24. Um, Not all of it, but, but a lot of it, because it just speaks for itself. The encounters that the disciples had with the risen Jesus, and you see how it changes them. And what, then I want to explore for us what that means. What does it mean to uh, encounter the risen Jesus? How does that impact our lives? So I'm going to read from Luke 24, verses 13 to 33, and then verses 45 to 49. And it starts with that wonderful story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he said. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And then jumping to verse 45, when, he's, when um, Jesus is speaking about the other disciples. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. 
and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. It's tempting just to stop there and say amen. But I wouldn't be doing my job. So I think I should just reflect on it a little bit. In some of the things I want to say, I just want to give a bit of a hat tip to um, a guy called Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. He's a a church leader in New York. Um, I read a lot of him. I listen to a lot of his podcasts. I would encourage you to do the same. He's a great guy, speaks really well, and and I'm quite influenced in what I'm going to say today by a lot of the stuff that Tim Keller has said. Everything is different now. When the, with the resurrection, perspective changes. You see that, don't you, in the reading. You see how the, the, the understanding of the disciples, those that were following Jesus, is changed. You see how their eyes are opened to who he is and to what he's done. Imagine that moment before. Imagine that time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The women at the tomb, the disciples cowering away in a room, afraid of what might happen to them. The two traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, probably feeling so downhearted. We had hoped he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel, but it doesn't seem to be the case. How must they have felt? What must have been going through their minds? And then they met the risen Jesus, and their whole world changed. The resurrection of Jesus understood in the context of Christ's death on the cross, is the key moment in yours and my faith. Anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus is the key axis moment around which everything else pivots. When we understand that, when we encounter the risen Jesus, we see everything else differently. Everything changes. You could put the first slide up, please. Oh, you have them. I can't see it there. Did, recently, my family had a reunion. We do it once every couple of years. And we were traveling to the Yorkshire Dales. Wensleydale, if you know the Yorkshire Dales. That's where my family, my, fa- my dad's side of the family are from. So every now and then we make this little pilgrimage up to the Dales. And we were traveling late on a Friday night. And we were traveling in absolute pitch darkness. Um... All we could see as we're traveling along this road to the place in Wensleydale that we were going to was kind of vague outlines of hills, hints maybe of what was out there. We had no idea of the landscape through which we were driving. And then actually when we went into the, if you've ever been in a place where there is very little light pollution, it's actually quite scary. We were in the door, in one of these dorms that we were staying and it really was pitch black. You know sometimes once you, you've gone to bed and you've switched the lights off, your eyes adjust and you kind of see a grey silhouette. There was nothing. It was just, I actually found it really quite frightening. I, was, I kind of turned my phone so I could see a little bit of a glow from it just so to comfort me. It was, it was so dark. Just couldn't see anything when there was, there was no light at all to give me any illumination um, to see what was around me. The women, the disciples, 
were all in the dark. Despair was creeping in. They couldn't see clearly. He was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to be the one who was going to do something about what was happening to them in Israel. He was supposed to be the one who was going to redeem them. Verse 22, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their view, if you like, was shaped around the events of Good Friday. Their axis point at that moment was around the events of Good Friday. Why had he been killed? Why had he died? Remember Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, faith is futile. That's what Paul says. We may have encountered Jesus. They may have seen Jesus do amazing miracles. They may have seen Jesus say some amazing teaching. But if at the end of the day, he dies and that's it, for what long-term gain is it? They've met someone good who gives some good teaching. They've seen some good miracles. But for what? If the resurrection doesn't happen. And then in the garden, you see Mary and Jesus appears to her and he says that word, doesn't he? Mary. And her eyes are opened to the risen Jesus. And everything changes for her. Sitting in a room by the fire, those two disciples who've walked on the road with Jesus, he breaks the bread and their eyes are opened and they see the risen Jesus. The woman, the women seeing the empty tomb, angels proclaiming to them, Christ is risen. Why are you looking for him? He is risen. He's not here. And then rushing back to tell the disciples. Incidentally, if you are going to make up a story like this, you don't have women being the ones who witness the risen Jesus. There are some people who say that this is just a symbolic story. If you're going to make up a story that you want um, people to believe, you don't, in those times, have women being the witnesses. Women didn't have authority to witness and to speak into situations in those times. If you want to make up a story like this, you have someone who has authority in those times. You have men witnessing it. But it was women who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. It was women who then went with the message to say, he is risen. And the darkness shatters. And for the first time, they see things how they really are. They're no longer seeing things through the lens of Good Friday. They're seeing things how they really are. If you could put the next slide on, Louise, please. When we woke up the next day in the Dales, we saw where we were. It was a beautiful day. Blue sky, sun shining, daffodils growing in the field, lambs scampering around the field, just waiting to be killed for Easter Day. Sorry, no, that's supposed to be... <laughs> Sorry, I was doing so well. It was a beautiful scene. 
And we could see the bigger picture. That which had only been hinted at as we'd driven there in the darkness. Now we see the big picture. Resurrection does that to the followers of Jesus. It helps us to see the big picture. It helps us understand the context within which we understand everything else. The resurrection changes perspective. It's a paradigm-shattering historical event. In a Facebook world where you like and dislike things, the resurrection doesn't give that option. It's either true or it's not. And if it's true, it has implications. You can't like the resurrection and not let it influence you and not let it have implications in your life. It's not something we can just click like for. For Saul, who became Paul, the Apostle Paul, this was definitely true. Think about it. It must have been really inconvenient for him to have meet, met the risen Christ. Because previous to that, he'd been, he, the gospel was offensive to him. This, this story of, of Christ and the, the followers of him, the followers of the way saying that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, would have been offensive to Paul as a Pharisee. This wasn't the way that he understood his scriptures. This wasn't the way that the, fa- the Messiah was meant to come. The gospel was offensive to him. He'd been killing Christians because it was so offensive to him. He'd murdered Christians. And then he meets the risen Christ. There are some things that are hard about Christianity. Some things that are difficult to take on board. But when you meet the risen Christ, and if you accept that as fact then you have to work those things out. And Paul did have to do that. Saul becoming Paul, he had to do that. He was faced with a risen Christ. There are people today who will talk about finding parts of the Bible, offensive, whatever that may be, whatever those areas may be. You and I might find things in the Bible really hard. But what matters before anything else, before we get into any of that discussion, is who is Jesus? Did he rise from the dead? Did along with his work on the cross, did he, did he do his work on the cross? Did he die for our sins and then did he rise from the dead and conquer death? If that is true, then we work out everything else in the light of that. I'm not saying it will, will be easy to work out those things. But that's our starting point through which we see everything else and through which we understand everything else. Saul had to do that. The gospel was offensive to him. He didn't like the way the Christians interpreted scripture. There were things that they said about scripture that he would have hated. But he was faced with the risen Jesus. He encountered him and he had to work everything out in the light of that. What matters before anything else is who Jesus is. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then why bother being so annoyed about the Bible, about Christianity? Why bother? Why bother being bothered by the church or how Christians are? Why would you bother if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? When you and I witness to who, when we we witness and when we evangelize, let's start with Jesus. Let's not talk about the church. Let's not talk about the issues first. I'm not saying they're not important, but we sometimes find it easier to go to those things. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's help people encounter Jesus. Because when we do that, however difficult it may be to work out the issues, we're doing it through the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done. For us, hopefully, the implications of the resurrection are not as immense as they were for Saul 
But if the resurrection is true, there are implications. How could there not be? C.S. Lewis, you know, who wrote the Narnia stories, he called himself a reluctant convert when faced with the risen Jesus. He says, you must picture me alone in my room in Magdalen in Cambridge. Night after night, or Oxford, I'm not sure which one it was. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, God, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. (laughs) That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. He called himself the most reluctant convert, but he was faced with the truth of who Christ was. It's interesting, isn't it? The light coming in the darkness has implications. It has knock-on effects. We see everything else differently. The next slide, please, Louise. For Saul, one of the key implications was how he read Scripture. You know, we, said, we read it, didn't we? How he op- weren't our eyes opened? And how Jesus on the road to Emmaus opened up the Scriptures to them. And they saw for the first time what those Scriptures that they knew so well actually had been saying and what they'd been pointing to. So one one of the things I think is the key implications of the resurrection, it helps us to see and understand the story of God in the light of what the resurrection is about. It helps us to understand scripture in a way, if, if you like, it's a bit like putting on glasses. I increasingly have to put on glasses when I'm reading, and I see, I'm able to see things because I put them on. I once, when I was studying, my, one of my lecturers said to me, you need to put on the hermeneutical glasses, the way that you read Scripture, and the glasses we need to put on are the risen Jesus. We read Scripture through our understanding of the risen Jesus, and it helps us to understand what it's about. It changes the way we read it. That is certainly true. On the road to Emmaus, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The word, the story of God, the scriptures. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then remember their words. Were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. You encounter the risen Jesus, you read the story of God in a different way. And you understand what it's talking about. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. It's leading us to Jesus. Imagine Saul in those days where he was blinded. You know that time when he encountered Jesus and then he was blinded. Imagine what must have been going through his head. You know, this gospel that, he was, that, that was so offensive to him, but he was faced with the truth of the risen Jesus. And he then had to think through all that he knew about Scripture and rethink it through in the light of what he now knew about Christ. Playing over all that he knows. The Messiah, this, this, this person of the Messiah that every good Jew knew about, that every good Jew hoped would come to redeem Israel, This Messiah that was supposed to be favored by God, that was supposed to be blessed by God, that was supposed to be supported by God. How could Jesus be that Messiah? How could he be to Paul? He will have been remembering scriptures like, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. How could Jesus be that one if he's cursed? How could he be the Messiah? And then he sees him raised from the dead. 
And if it's true, then God did vindicate Jesus. God does love him. God is pleased with him. Paul must have then gone, well then, if he was cursed and abandoned, it must have been for somebody else's sins, not his own. He must have gone over those scriptures he knew so well. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the first part which talks about this king coming, the king that is going to be sent by God. But then the second part of Isaiah, which talks about the suffering servant, maybe Saul started going, I wonder if the two are the same person. Now that I know who Jesus is and what he went through, maybe Paul started his seeing scriptures for the first time and really understanding what they were pointing to. What about all the texts about sacrifice, about goats and lambs atoning for our sins? What if that wasn't really what it was all about? What if they didn't really atone for sins, but they were pointing towards someone who one day would atone for every sin, would atone for all the sins of the world? Maybe those scriptures that he knew so well were pointing towards this person. What about Ezekiel and Jeremiah talking about something called a new covenant? And about God writing the law on the hearts of those who knew him. What was all that about? God talking to people face to face. Almost as, almost as if there was no need for a priest or temple. And then, oh, if Jesus really did do that. If Jesus really was the sacrificial lamb who has once and for all atoned for all the sins. Maybe that's what those scriptures were pointing towards. Jesus is the key to understanding all these texts. I am desperately at the moment trying to avoid anyone who has seen Endgame. If you've seen Endgame, Avengers Endgame, please don't, please don't come and talk. <laughs> please don't come and talk to me. I'm seeing it tonight, and I don't want to know what happens. There are films, aren't there, where once you know the ending you go back over what you've already seen and you see things differently, don't you? Um, I'm sure there is stuff that happens in Endgame. Sorry if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're not a, an, a Marvel fan. This is Marvel films and there's a big film that they released called Endgame, which is the culmination of a whole plot line of 10 years, I think, perhaps, of Marvel films. And they all kind of, work, all the plot lines of these separate films work towards this one film. So one, I, I, I'm sure that once I've seen this film tonight, I will understand stuff that's happened in the other films in a different way because I'll see why, how they were working towards them. Another film that's really good like this is um, Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but Bruce Willis dies. <laughs> but that's a film you can't watch twice, is it? You, 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 you only watch it twice. The first time you watch it, you, you, you get to this... <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm presuming that it's quite an old film that most of you have seen it. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I have ruined it, actually, if you haven't seen it. Um, but you get to the end and you have this shock reveal. And then, if you're like me, you go and watch the film again. And you go, oh, yeah. Now I know that. I see what was happening there. And you see it in a totally different way. You see him sitting at the table with his wife and actually she doesn't actually talk to him. You think when you first see it they're sitting together and talking, but he's not. He's dead and he's a ghost that's there. 
and she's not actually talking to him. And you go back over it and you see what you've already seen in a different way. All the plot lines of the Bible come to this big end game of Jesus dying and being risen. All the plot lines of the Bible lead to Jesus. And once you've met him, you can't see the rest of Scripture in the same way again. You see how it points to him. Once we see the grand plan, it gives us hope and it gives us confidence and it gives us a message. That's the second thing I briefly want to say about. It changes the way we see scripture. It changes how we see the whole story of God leading to this. And then in that place, it gives us hope and it gives us a message to speak to the world. Look at what happened to the disciples when they met the risen Jesus. Look at how they changed from being cowering people in a room, afraid of what might happen to them, to being people who stood in front of crowds, who stood in the temple proclaiming who Jesus was. Not afraid of what the authorities would say, because the authorities wouldn't have been pleased. In fact, there's, well, there's one scripture, I think, in Acts that says they were rather annoyed, <laughs> which is a bit of an understatement, I think, of the authorities. Of course they were. Because they were pointing the finger at the authorities who had crucified Christ, who had put him to death, but saying he is risen. And it is by his name that we are now healing people. You know, by the gate beautiful, healing the lame man who gets up and walks in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. <laughs> it's not going to go down well, but what, what a difference the risen Christ did, has done for them in their confidence and their authority. Everything is different now. Peter reinstated, he who denied Jesus three times, reinstated, affirmed for who he is, upon you I will build my church. In Acts, the resurrection dominates the preaching of Peter and Paul. It was a message that people hungered for. Isn't that true today? Isn't it true today that it's still a message that people hunger for? That there is hope? That there's resurrection? That there is new life? That death isn't the end? That God is the one who has the last word on anyone and everyone? Isn't that still a message that people hunger for today? It gives hope for the future. And you see it in the first disciples. You see it in the way that they lived their lives and the way they proclaimed Jesus and that they weren't afraid of what might happen to them because they knew they were part of a bigger story. Even the Jews were uncertain of the resurrection. You remember that debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and um, Paul was very clever in, in raising this issue of resurrection to them because they started taking their focus off him and talking to amongst themselves and arguing amongst themselves about the resurrection. They weren't certain that what the resurrection was and if there was a resurrection, what it looked like. The prevailing philosophy in time, those times, in, in the times of the first disciples, one of the main prevailing philosophies was by someone called Epicurus who said that death is the end. When you die, you die. So don't be afraid was his thing. You know, you're not going to feel anything. I mean, that's not any hope, is it? Isn't that still a philosophy that we hear today from people? When you die, you die. I don't think people really want to believe that. I don't think that really makes sense to people. 
But if you meet someone who tells you about the resurrection, if you meet someone who has met the risen Jesus, finally you know that you are not inconsequential, that your life means something you know. You know that now. Death is not the end. God has done something about it. He has had the last word and he is making all things new. The resurrection is not about some vague Star Wars-esque, you will die and then you will become part of the cosmos. The resurrection is physical and it's personal and it's certain. It's flesh and blood. Jesus met with them, the risen Jesus met with them and he had fish and chips on the beach with his disciples. He ate food. The resurrection is, is about matter. We've talked about this when we talked about hope for creation. Matter matters to God. It's not some weird, vague thing that we go to, heaven. Heaven is about this stuff that's good. All that is good about his creation, that's what the resurrection's about. And resurrection is about restoration, restoring that which was once made perfect back to the way it was originally meant to be. That gives me hope, because what matters to me now matters to God now, and he is restoring that back. That's what resurrection is about. It's personal. That which matters to you is being restored. Behold, I am making all things new. Resurrection is the restoration of all of creation to how it was meant to be. There's an, there is an inevitability. Be, there is an inevitability about life, especially as you get older, of a sense of loss. I find that really hard. You know, things just don't work the way they used to be. Used to do. You you experience loss, and if you're not careful, that can actually suck the joy from life. Resurrection says, comes against that. Resurrection says, all that was lost will be restored. All that was good that was lost will be restored. I love Tim Keller on this. I mentioned Tim Keller as someone who um, influenced me when I was preparing for this. He says, you don't, in the resurrection, you don't just get your body back. You get the body you've always wanted that you never had. That might be an encouragement to some of us. <laughs> but it's, it's a real physical thing. It's the things that matter to us that are being restored in the resurrection. That's, that's hopeful. Can you remember that passage um, from Joel? Um, the, the prophet Joel. Resurrection being about restoration. God will restore that which is lost. Some of us will know loss. All of us in this room will know loss. You'll know the pain of, 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 of getting older and how as you get older you experience loss. God says in his, in, through the risen Jesus, I've done something about that. I will restore that which is lost. That's a hopeful message. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. Didn't know there were that many locusts, but there we go. My great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. 
And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people will never be put to shame. Then you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. That's what resurrection is about. That's what restoration is about. Jesus' resurrection is walking proof that his people will miss nothing. That which has been taken, that which has been lost. Christians around the world who have been faithful to Jesus and have suffered the consequences of being faithful to Jesus. We probably don't know the half of it in the Western world. The resurrection means that which was taken from them will be restored. That's why they're able to live the lives they do. That's why the first disciples were able to live the lives they did. We in this life do not get removed from the experience of Good Friday. The loss, the pain, and the emptiness of the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We don't get to miss that. We don't just jump to this kind of straight into this Easter Sunday, everything is okay. We don't. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that's true. But we do get to experience Easter Sunday. And we do get to experience the resurrection. And that changes how we see Good Friday. And that changes how we experience Good Friday. Because we know it is not the final word on us. We know it is not the final word of God. We know that he is making all things new. And that through that journey, he will bring new life. And he will restore that which is taken. That's what resurrection is about. God has done something about this. He's conquered death. He is the God of resurrection. He's the God of restoration. There is going to be a wedding feast one day. A real wedding feast. It will be yours and ours. And it's there for everyone. It's, it can be a certainty. Again, an illustration I once heard is, the wages of sin were paid. And it's like a giant receipt. You know when you go to the shop and you buy something, and these days you often don't get a bag, do you? Because you have to pay for a bag. Well, if you like me, I don't get a bag. I, I wander around the shop with the shirt I've just bought. You keep, you keep the receipt, don't you? Because someone might come up to you and go, have you paid for that? And you say, yes, here's my receipt. This proves that it's been paid for. The resurrection is like one big giant receipt for, for you and me. It's been paid for. We can be certain, and it's open to everyone. No other religion or philosophy offers this, this sort of future. They might give some sort of um, vague, it's going to be all right message, but no other religion or philosophy says it's about restoration, and you have a certain future, and it's personal. This is what we need to be telling our non-Christian friends before we deal with anything else. Before we deal with all those issues that are out there and are important, this is what we need to be telling people about. Jesus, it, it, he is the axis. Once we understand him and his death and his resurrection, we see everything in, in the light of that. That's what it all revolves around.